I hope you brought your Bibles with you this morning. And I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes. We'll be in the second chapter. And while you're looking for that address, we're going to read through our catechism for the morning. This week is question number 26. And if uh, I was never really great at math, but I think that puts us halfway, doesn't it? Out of 52 weeks. I'll read the question. We'll all read the answer together. The question is, what else does Christ's death redeem? Christ's death is the beginning of the redemption and renewal of every part of fallen creation as he powerfully directs all things for his own glory and creation's good. Thank you very much. And we'll study that in depth this coming Wednesday evening during our Wednesday evening Bible study and prayer meeting. But I want to begin reading. This would be Ecclesiastes chapter 2. And we'll start in the second paragraph there in verse 12. And we'll read through to the end of the chapter. This is, we believe, to be Solomon or as he's referred to as the preacher. Verse 12, so I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this is also vanity. For of the wise as of the fool there is no enduring remembrance. Seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after wind. Verse 18, I hated all my toil, in which I toiled under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This is also vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night... His heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Verse 24. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have any enjoyment? For the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. This is God's word 
Thanks be to God for His Word. Let's bow and pray. Father in heaven, we thank you again for another Sunday, another opportunity to learn from your Word with our our Bibles open and our laps, seated beside our brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, we have much to be thankful for, but we have much to learn. We ask that you teach us today from your Word to understand it, but also to obey it. And we ask all this in your precious name. Amen. Well, the preacher considers two more categories in these two paragraphs. It was the intention to cover all of chapter 2 last week, uh, but the decision was made late in the week to chop off those last two paragraphs. There's a lot there. But in those two, we're introduced to two more categories of which Solomon... uh, sought to find the meaning of life. That's the basis of this book. He'll carry it on toward the end. And these categories are rather straightforward. One is living wisely. That's that middle paragraph. And then the last paragraph is given over to working hard. And right in the middle of these two, if you were to look back between the end of that middle paragraph and the beginning of the last paragraph, that's verses 17 and 18, Solomon tells us how he feels. Look at it. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous. It's just vanity, striving after wind. Verse 18, I hated all my toil or my work, which I worked for under the sun. So basically, I hate my life. I hate my job. Ever met anyone like that? (laughs) Ever been sentenced to the prison of riding alongside someone like that for however long the flight takes or bus ride or ride to school with uh, your mother or your father. Who knows? A lot of people might not say that out loud, but I bet a lot of people more than we would think actually feel that way. I'm not happy where I am. I'm not happy with my job. And he goes on to explain some of these things. But that'll be basically our aim for our time together today. Why does Solomon hate his life and why does Solomon hate his work? We'll start out with the first one. So we go back to verse 13 and 14. Then I saw there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, more gain in light than darkness. And then he gives us that illustration of the wise person with his eyes in his head. The fool walks in the darkness, but the same thing happens in the end. So notice he's still talking about gain. And we talked about that for two weeks now, that, that that's the problem. This life wasn't meant for gain. If you try to pile up what you've got here in this life, you'll have to let go of it when you die. That's the, the whole misery of, of this life. You can't take any of it with you. But he's still doing that. We would think he would know better. But look at it again. There is more gain. So if that's your task, that's what you're looking for, wisdom will serve you better than folly. And it's kind of the same as there's more gain in light than in darkness. I know some people work third shift, but you can't really work third shift out in the field unless you've got some light. There's a practicality about light. He's using that as a way to understand or to say understanding. It's better to know things than not to know things. That, 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 that will streamline things. Uh, that'll make things more efficient if that's what you're trying to do, to gain things. So study hard, get wise, 
and get understanding. He uses this illustration here. After he's made his assessment, the wise person has eyes in his head. I like the way he put that, don't you? You can see with your eyes in your head. Open them up. Look. That's better than walking around in the dark. That would be foolishness. But then, this event that he's talking about, the same event happens to all of them. What is he talking about there? Well, it has to be the fact that death stalks both the wise and the foolish. And it will eventually get them both. And be it as it may, the wise person versus the fool person live their lives as completely and totally different as they possibly could. But in the end, they wind up in the same place. So he's scratching his head. He's talking out loud. What do we do with all that? And if you remember from last week, we read that through all the experimenting, you remember that list of things he said he gave his life over to look, searching for the meaning of life and it was through pleasure. He talked about laughter and he talked about alcohol and he talked about stuff and about music and building things and having things. It was a gargantuan list, all in the plural, of these things he did. And if you notice, there's at least twice in there, especially right after he talked about his experimentation with alcohol, that he kept his wisdom through that. That he hadn't jettisoned his thinking. That his eyes are open, he knows what he's doing, there's, there's a plan for all this, and he hadn't... It's not like this, some having thrown all caution to the wind, he just lives like a fool. No, he kept his wisdom. But in the end of it... He says it hasn't done him any good. And it wouldn't help him escape the inevitable. So he concludes somewhat in verse 15. Then I said in my heart, another heart to heart. What happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? Not that he doesn't want to be wise anymore. Or that he would turn in his wisdom and trade for something else. What he's saying is that it didn't do me any good. I've been cheated. If, if this is a race, uh, I got to the finish line the exact same time as the foolish person who, who didn't do any of these things. So when he looks at his life and he looks at his work and what he's done, he says, I've been gypped and it's not fair. You ever feel that way? You ever buy something and feel like you got gypped? Or you listen to somebody who's selling something and you got gypped. There's nothing. Some people it doesn't bother. But boy, there are some people who that. There's nothing worse than thinking you got something you didn't get. You overpaid. Maybe that's what's bothering him here. Now, he hasn't made much of a point. But he has told us how he feels. That he's feeling gypped. He's cheated. It's not fair. And there's something for getting something off your chest, isn't it? Um, I'm sure some of you like watching war movies, especially in between uh, the holidays. Sometimes they do these specials. One of the better ones, more awards, uh, what was his name? Uh, George C. Scott in Patton, remember? Sometimes the opening monologue from the flag is all that some Americans need to just get dressed and go back to work, right? feeling depressed um, 
Don't go home and watch it with the kids, though. Your mom would probably do what mine did and put her hands over your ears for most of that part and standing in front of the flag. But at the end of it, right before or after, I can't remember specifically, he tells them that he'd be proud to lead those young men into battle anywhere, anytime. And he takes a deep breath, stares at all of them and says, now you know how I feel. After he'd pretty much just about said everybody on the planet is subpar to the American ideals. I think Solomon's just getting this off his chest. Now you know how I feel. I hate my life and I hate my job. So we've covered the first paragraph. Let's look at the second one. Specifically, why does he hate his work? Well, all of these I think we can pull straight from what we're reading. We'll look at three. But the first is because he's going to have to leave all his stuff to somebody else. If you found out, you, you got a letter in the mail, all of your stuff. This is future mail. This hasn't happened yet, but you're going to have to hand it all over. Does that ruin your day? What if, what, what if, what if the letter was actually um, addressed to you from the IRS? We're going to take... <laughs> everything mostly of what you've made that'd be a bad day but what he's saying here is nothing's happened but if I'm going to die and I'm going to lose all I've worked for what is the actual point of living and again just like with his wisdom he's not ready to throw it away and he's not ready to end his life or forfeit the rest of it what he's saying is what's the point where's the beef if I've got to work and I can't take it with me, then please somebody tell me what this is all for. Despite my best efforts to choose where and to whom my stuff will go, even when I realize I can't take it with me, I know I can't control anything past my death. A pointless situation is an irritating situation. You, you've got to agree with that if you want to watch absolute pandemonium or a mutiny try to watch a group of men digest having been told by say a, a manager or product manager or boss whatever that they are to do something that at the moment makes no sense at all take this pile of rocks right here and move it over there why I mean, don't we all ask why? If it doesn't immediately make sense to us. You're looking at me like you don't do this. Like when you get stuck in traffic, you're looking as best you can around. Why? Why are we stopped? This is a road. We're supposed to go. Is he on his phone? What's going on here? Or you see like a work project. And you're like, what's that going to be? I wish they'd hurry up and finish it so I can find out what it's going to be. Why are they doing all that? Why are they tearing this road up again? We don't like pointless work. So if it looks like his work is pointless, well, he's legitimately complaining, wouldn't you say? All work needs to have a point. Job seemed to figure this out long before Solomon did, and Solomon could have had Job to learn from. That's an older book in the Scriptures. It was Job who would say, Naked came I from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return, not to his mother's womb, but he came into this 
world with nothing. He'll leave this world with nothing. His response is, the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. I had nothing, so I have something. Well, God gave it to me. Now I have nothing again, so the Lord must have taken it away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Solomon doesn't get that yet. And we're going to find out that he will get it, or the narrator that closes the book will get it. But Solomon's still in that point of life where his attention is clearly down here. He's not looking up where the Lord is, but under the sun. So he goes on to add to that first layer. He's angry because all the things that he's worked for, he can't take with him. But then number two, we'll look at this in verse 18. Solomon hates his work. Because that someone else who's going to get all this stuff might be an idiot. Look at verse 18. I hated all my toil, in which I toiled under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. If somebody's going to be driving my car around, I, I don't want him to be whatever he thinks to be stupid. Right? You have children, don't you? Have you ever had a situation where one of your kids wants to play with one of the other kids' toys? If you had more than two, maybe three, four kids? Well, I don't mind if so-and-so plays with them, but the other one can't. Why? Because he won't put them back where they were. Or he won't take care of them. Or he doesn't like them as much. Or I don't like him as much. It matters, doesn't it? Haven't you got friends that you'll let borrow something and friends you won't? (laughs) Why? Because one looks at whatever it is closer to the way you look at whatever it is rather than the other one. This isn't rocket science. We relate to this stuff. The thought of a moron having full command of all he worked for so hard is hateful to him. So what does he do? If we read on, he throws his heart into the depths of despair. Like little Anne Shirley and Anne of Green Gables. I hated those movies. Mom and, did, mom and my sister watched them on repeat when I was about 12. And that didn't make any point to me. I had better things to watch. Tear something up. Blow something up. Jump off of something. Be chased by something dangerous, but... I don't want to hear about the depths of despair. Number three, Solomon hated his work because that someone else who'll be having fun with all his stuff might not have worked a day in their whole life. That might be the most hateful to him. Look at verse 21. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. You don't even know what this is worth. You ever find something up for auction, say it in a state sale, and it looks like the most worthless thing you've ever seen, but to the person who poured their lives into it, it means everything. So we're talking about the depths of despair here, but this is the guy who's had more than anyone else has ever had. Poor Solomon. It's kind of hard to feel sorry for him, isn't it? But everyone's willing to feel sorry for themselves. Instead of working for himself, and I think this is where he might be chapped more than any other way, 
it, it's dawning on him. He's realized that instead of working for himself, he's working for the slacker who might wind up with it all. <laughs> Have you ever talked to anyone busy in their business and you just talk, how's it going? Things busy? Are they tough? Stuff's expensive? And then it just kind of rolls out of their mouth. Well, I'll just work my fingers to the bone so so-and-so can live at ease. That's their children, right? Well, we don't know if he's talking about his children or not. But sometimes that's difficult, especially when a business that was built with sweat, blood, and tears falls into the hands of someone who haven't managed to do anything, finish anything, haven't finished their homework, haven't finished their vegetables, haven't finished a thank you note, haven't finished anything. And then something happens and you realize, I'm mortal. I can't go on like this. It's diminishing returns. And all for that? No, I expected more. And I'll continue to make myself known until I roll over dead. I'll remind them. I'll harp on it. I'll ruin everybody's day. It's the last I can do. The least I can do. You've known these people. Maybe you say, ease up. Stepping on my toes here. This is vanity, he says, and a great evil. Why? Same as the last gripe. He doesn't think it's fair. The man can't even sleep for worrying about it. And everybody knows we live in a world where a lot of times we have to take pills just to wash our brains of the things that won't stop turning in our minds because there's so much stuff, so much to do, so much to worry about. We can't even sleep. This business of tearing up stuff and getting on people's nerves, again, I think we all live here. Back to that business of work and it being pointless. I, I think I've shared with you, I used to work at a, a car dealership. That, that was what I called my first real job. Before that, I worked at car lots. Those are used cars, pre-owned. If, if you have the money to put a TV commercial on, we just called them used. And uh, then we had a line down the side that were really bad off and we called those cars a special something I won't repeat <laughs> but we had something for everyone right and the best news we could hear is that we're going to get cars because that meant a trip to Reedsville or to Statesville and you just ride all day get out of the van get in a car and bring it back but then the next day you had to clean them up and the boss man would say he'd always say this make them all they can be and I was pretty good at it, been trained by several guys who did this for a living. And I was proud one afternoon of what I had done to resurrect this Pathfinder. And again, I was, I was proud of myself until I saw some people come onto the car lot that we'd seen before. We knew them from church. And every time we saw them, oh no, they're not <laughs> looking at the Pathfinder. These people could tear up an anvil. They had acres and acres, and they didn't, they didn't grade the road. They didn't put asphalt, no gravel, nothing. Holes, potholes big enough to swallow camels. And, and they wouldn't keep the trees trimmed back. They'd just blow through there at highway speed. And that was just the exterior. 
They'd go through windows and eat junk food and I guess just expect it to decompose and just become one with a carpet. It was awful. I worked all day long one day to make my boss happy and then watch it be sold to those people. (laughs) And then every Sunday I would see what it looked like. Worse and worse. Every quarter panel, fender, hood, roof would have knots and dings and rust and terrible i didn't even want to look inside and i wanted to say what's the why didn't you just let me go fish in the river that day give them a starter kit on destroying it if we don't watch it that's the way we'll live our lives this is mine i deserve this they can't have it and trying to pretend that we're never going to die We're just going to pile up more and stake more flags and write its mine over more things. But that's not the way it works. And ask an executor of wills. Lawyers do a lot of this stuff. What it's like to sit and watch a family rip each other apart over stuff that will rot. That none of them will take with them. There's just another cycle of people fighting over it. Stuff that will rot or burn So here's the preacher's conclusion. Verse 24, there is nothing better. So he's making yet another assessment. One assessment was wisdom's better than foolishness. But in 24, he's saying there's nothing better. This is the best thing. This is my conclusion. And what is it? For a person that they or he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. If you pull that off, I think that's what's best in life. Solomon is saying, eat and drink and find enjoyment. Where? In your toil. You're going to have to find it too. It probably won't fall in your lap. But if you can find it in your work, that's good. It's not a bad answer and it gets even better. This also, I saw, this is his assessment, his observation, is from the hand of God for apart from him, apart from who? Apart from God, who can eat? Or who can have enjoyment. That's really good. Now he's still looking under the sun. He's not made his final point. That's at the end of the book. But basically he's saying by the end of chapter 2. See if you can't enjoy this moment. Right now. He's talking in the present. Can you be happy. Where you are in life. Can you be happy. Where you are in life presently. That's harder than you might think. Depending on your temperament. I remember my daddy one time. Saying something. And I was a lot younger. But just barely getting old enough. To, to kind of be clued into adult conversations. And this had to do with his family. Extended family. And I think we we're sitting in the yard of... Uh, of his sister's place. And it had been okay, but not everything was perfect. And I remember him saying, Son, you're going to find out that there are some people that can only be happy where they were in the past. At a certain time when certain things were a certain way. But right now... And then you'll find that there's certain people that can't be happy until they get a little further down the road when they expect things to be different than the way they are now. 
He said, you're going to find that very few people can be happy anytime, anywhere, regardless of the past or the future. And I guess because I was younger and these are serious things he's saying and I'm kind of getting a clue as to who he's referring to, I remembered it. It's good good stuff. It's hard stuff to be happy right right where you are. Uh, Paul decided that. when we. I have determined to be content in whatsoever state I find myself. It's kind of a choice. No one ever calls the time they live in the golden age. I've never met anybody. I hear a lot of people talking about a golden age or the good old days, but it's usually in the past. And then there's always something to gripe about right now. Gas, groceries, all kinds of stuff. You gripe that it's hotter than it usually is. This is hot as it is in Florida. But we get cooler nights. Be happy about that. And a little less humidity. Though every now and then it feels like Florida. There's always something going on to worry. May ruin our future. Right? Oh, well, if this person gets elected. Or if we have to do this again. or uh, The point is there's always time to complain. You can complain about the past. You can complain about the future. You can complain about right now. But it'll be a choice to decide that you can be happy where you are. Now, remember the context we're studying here. Are we talking about being happy at the beach or in the mountains? We're talking about being happy in your work, at your job, changing diapers, whatever it is you do that God gave you to do. If we were to zoom out from Ecclesiastes 2 to see the big, big broad picture of the whole Bible... Work was part of the plan before sin ever came into the picture. So that stuff you've heard about, well, you know, Adam and Eve, and it was Eve's fault she gave him the apple. Was it really an apple? Come on now. And then we had to work. No, they had to work before that. It's just after that the work got really hard. And if you think your job is hard, try having babies and taking care of them. I think moms have it worse really do it'd be a good thing why didn't Solomon tell us about that save us from all kinds of misery thinking that we have it harder those of us that go to work as if women don't work Um, look at verse don't look at it just listen you can turn there later if you want to this is in Genesis you should know it already the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, this is skipping a bit, and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creatures, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. That's a job. A human genome project may be more simple than that or the first dictionary still think raising kids would be tougher than naming all the animals. But it's a job. He'd get that other job later. What this is, is delegated creativity. Ever thought of it that way? We're not the same as God. We're creation. Created beings. He put on this planet and then he said, do stuff. He gave us the authority to raise our homes That's delegated authority. Well, this is delegated creativity. He didn't bring the animal and say, this is 
you know, a narwhal. So call it a narwhal. He said, you name it. Think it up. What does it remind you of? You know, some things are, are named certain things because that's what they remind us of. It's interesting how some of them are easier to go by by the way that they're described. But then when you get into the scientific stuff, boy, you need a map for that kind of thing. But we're supposed to be that way. Elsewhere it said, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, the beasts of the field. That's what Cain and Abel did, right? They worked, having dominion over these things. You know, there's a word that's close to it, but we see it as a huge negative. Domineering. You don't want to be called domineering. But what does it mean? Having dominion over. It's hardwired by our Creator that we be creative. We are creative because we're made in the likeness of our Creator. Now, we're not supposed to rule the world or tell everyone what to do. That's domineering in the use of domineering as it's used in our English language. There can be an imbalance. You can be a workaholic. You can give your life to your job instead of your family. That's all bad. But at the same time, the idea that work is bad is not true. Work is good. And it can be enjoyable. After the fall of man into sin, work remained as well as its enjoyable qualities, but it became significantly harder because of the curse of sin. Work also became the means of making a name for oneself. To pile up gain for ourselves. Consequently, that's how to reduce work to vanity. If you look at the work described in Genesis after the fall. If you just open the book of Genesis and start reading after sin. And trying to find anything that might remotely look like work. You're going to find out that it's not all bed of roses. The first thing we saw was that Adam and Eve sewed fig leaves together to cover their nakedness. Any of you got a fig tree in your yard? Uh, if you ever cut off a limb on a fig tree, how long does it take for that fig leaf to just ball up in a ball and blow away in the wind? Like five minutes? Of all the leaves, why didn't they use one of these magnolias? <laughs> Those things stay around forever and ever and ever. But their work instantly became vanity. We just made these clothes. And then you sneezed and blew it off of both of us. <laughs> and then you got Cain and Abel. That's not a funny story. One of them thought so much of his work that when God said your sacrifice isn't good, it's not what I asked for. He goes and kills the brother whose sacrifice was accepted. And then you got Noah, after the flood, he decides to plant a vineyard. And what does he do with the proceeds? Makes wine and gets drunk. He's found naked by his sons. It's a, it's a big mess. And then there's that whole Tower of Babel, using their technology to build a, a tower all the way to heaven, to make a name for themselves. Work became riddled with vanity. It's obvious that the whole system is cursed. Not that we can't enjoy it, but it can't be the meaning of life and it certainly can't be piled up for keeps so work became self-serving 
So if we're going to try to transfer this out of what was in the scriptures into what is where we live, what's in this for me? How can I apply this? I think there's at least three things we could say. There could be more, maybe a lot more. But first, if you want to write this down, life or work, both of them are here in the passage, is not is meant to be enjoyed, not to be mastered. That's kind of another way of saying it's meant for gift, not for gain. It's meant to be enjoyed. It's not meant to be mastered. You, you can't master it. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. You can't make an account of something that's not there. These are things Solomon's already said. It's striking how in verse 24 and 5, at the end of Solomon's epic quest for the meaning of life, most of it's spent on pleasure, he actually discovers where meaning comes from. And he finds that it's not from his striving, but from God's giving. Though I don't think he understands the ramifications of it yet. But at least he gets it right. This also, I saw, is, a, is from the hand of God, from apart from him who can eat or who can have enjoyment. It's to be enjoyed. It's not to be mastered. Alright, another one. We don't find... Or we don't work, rather, to find significance. We work because we have significance. When you say that, that you hear about that or books are written about it. If, if you do what you love for a living, you'll never work a day in your life. Is that how it goes? Problem is, it usually starts off with a hobby and the hobby turns into a job and then you wind up hating the job and the hobby. Right? But if you could enjoy it, not because you're working to make a name for yourself. I need significance, so I will work towards significance. If you flip that backwards, no, I am significant because God made me. And I'll work because He said I should. And I can work. I'm creative. I'll build something. I'll do something. I'll paint something. I'll sing something. I'll eat something. But I'll do something. Because I have significance. Not to find significance. Your children this evening, if they're going to attend vacation Bible school, uh, that starts this evening, pray about that. Pray for vacation Bible school. It'll be a great week. And that these children will learn about their Lord who made them. But the first installment in this year's curriculum, they're going to learn that they're made in the image of God and that's where their significance is found. The value of life is not from what life can do, but from the place it came from. The God who made it and breathed into our nostrils the breath of life. That gives life significance. If you wait for a life to be significant, then you assess its value when it's made itself significant. It, it grows into its value. Or it's significant because God made it in the first place. It has value at the beginning and is always valuable until God takes it back. We have to live under the same flag and our government must be organized and there will be issues and difficulties living together. But there are certain things in Scripture, if we believe them as truth, 
They'll make things a lot more simply, more simplistic. And that's one of them. I'll say it one more time and we'll move on. The value of life is not from what life can do, but from the God who gave it to us. So teach your kids. And in the realm of work, don't teach your kids to be entitled. Please don't do that. Save the world from one more kid who thinks the planet revolves around them. If they're breathing, God gave them breath. They don't deserve anything. You or I don't deserve anything. We deserve death. We sinned against our Creator. He's chosen to give us life through His Son who died on a cross to pay all that off. We don't deserve anything. Walking around like we're owed anything is just to basically act as if we don't believe our Bibles. And it's going to wind up in a miserable existence because at the end of it, you're going to die. (laughs) And that's the great leveler. We're all at the same. We all have the same 24 hours in a day. Some of us have more days than others, but in the end, there's an accounting. Number three, you will enjoy your work more when you understand that enjoying your work is not the point. I say, come on, you just said that was the point. Are you messing with me at the end here? No. Solomon said it's a good thing if you can enjoy your work. Can you be happy now? You should be able to because of what Jesus did on the cross and this isn't all there is. But if you're trying to enjoy your work just for the sake of enjoyment, you're trying to stack up enjoyment. The point is enjoy your God and be glorified in Him. That way, your work will be enjoyable. Your family will be enjoyable. What you eat will be enjoyable. Every day? No. Sometimes they're going to put gross stuff in front of you. You've got to eat it and act like it's enjoyable. Sometimes your family will get on your nerves. Sometimes your family will say the most hateful things anyone on this planet's ever said to you. Then there'll be days where you'll say goodbye to them, maybe early. But you can enjoy even the hard stuff only because you know this isn't all there is. Only because you know that Jesus came and did all of it lived the most meaningless life of anyone in order to put back what went wrong in the garden. So what if our work was never intended to make us successful but simply to make us faithful and generous? I think that's what it's for. If so, then death is meant to show us how we are to live. If Solomon's all upset because he's going to die and leave it all, then Solomon, understand that since you're going to die... Don't be so attached to it. Enjoy it for what it's worth under the sun, knowing that there's way more to come. And then I'm at the bottom of my page, but I wrote this in pencil after I got here this morning. I find it fitting that one of the sweetest, most precious members of this church family, whose face and countenance was the epitome of contentment and satisfaction may very well have lived longer than any of us 
until just a few days ago. And after lunch, we'll officially, by way of the formality of a funeral service, say goodbye to Miss Rochelle. If you ever made a visit and saw her hospitality, I'll tell you how much she thought of the moment. She dressed up for it. Just so she could make the most of your visit to her home. That's just one. We could go on and on and on. And we may later today. But think about that. And think about the people in your life that, that know how to enjoy the moment. It's only possible because they know where they're going. And when it's time to go, it's almost a celebration rather than a, a grievous thing because we weren't looking for any of that out of this. We're just waiting until the Lord says it's time to come home. I think that's enough. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your mercy, your grace, your death on the cross to pay for what we could never pay for ourselves. Lord, may, may we believe, may we repent, may we not miss so great a salvation. But Lord, take us to, take us to task on this incessant worry, anxiety, over stuff, and what to do with it, and who gets it, and what's fair and what's not, who deserves it and who doesn't. Lord, would you just be Lord over what's left from this day forward? If we enjoy anything, may that direct our gaze to your face in thanksgiving and gratitude. And Lord, would you seal these things to our heart? And we ask all this in your precious name. Amen.